Welcome to the sermon podcast of the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. We are currently preaching a series from the book of Genesis called Back Where I Began, the search for meaning in the book of Genesis. It has been said that we can't know what we are supposed to do unless we know what story we are a part of. In the book of Genesis, God tells us in no uncertain terms what story we are a part of. We are a part of his story, a story that he has been writing since the beginning for our good and his glory. We're so glad you've joined us for this podcast, and if you are able, we'd like to invite you to join us in person for worship. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 at 3410 Granny White Pike in Nashville, Tennessee. This has been an unspeakable week for our city, Um, for our community, for Midtown. And it's hard, it's hard to talk about shock and it's hard to talk about grief. It's hard to talk about evil. And <clears throat> I'll tell you why it's hard for me. And if you can find yourself in this, great. If you can't, I'm sorry. Um, there have been times this week where I've been so numb that I haven't felt anything. I mean, I've I've walked into the valley of darkness this week, and at times I didn't feel anything. And it was crazy how my soul did violence to me by shaming me at times for not feeling anything. Maybe you've had that experience. When everybody around you is falling apart, but you seem to be untouched by it. But then there have been times this week where um, I couldn't control it. Like, I felt sadness this week. I I felt fear this week. Um, I even felt profound loneliness this week. And I've been all over the scale. And I'm saying that because uh, can we as a community have permission to be wherever we are in this? And is it okay for some people to need to, to tear up and cry and grieve in that way? And other people don't need that right now. But that's okay. Because emotions don't tell me what's true. They just tell me what's going on with me. And they're a gift from the Lord. But one of the things that I've done this week is I've sabotaged my emotional journey at times. I'll tell you how. Maybe you have. uh, By asking questions. Actually asking one question. Um, And that question is why? Man, I want an answer to that question. It's almost like if I understood that then somehow it would make sense of everything and it wouldn't hurt as much. It's, that's not true. But questions like, God, where were you? Where are you, God? Why would you allow such an evil? I don't understand. I don't. I've, I found it at times really difficult to pray this week because I was angry at God. So let's take, on, let's take that question, why? And can we just hang on to it together as a community for a little bit? And then we're going to come to this table. Because it's a grace that God has given us this passage today. Um, this is the beginning of Passion Week for the church. If you've never been in church before, or if you're a newbie, we love it. But let me tell you what's happening. This week is a week where we pause in our lives and we make intentional time to consider that today is uh, the day that Jesus rode triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem 
which began the week of him being arrested, going on trial. Friday, we're going to come again together on Good Friday to uh, celebrate and worship and contemplate the death of Christ. And then on Sunday is the resurrection. And so we call it Passion Week. And Passion means a week of suffering. And we're willingly choosing to walk into that. So let's read. Caitlin, are you going to read for me this morning? We're going to go to John chapter 12. And this is starting in verse 12 through 19. If you have a Bible, um, I encourage you to go there. Um, Hear the word of the Lord. John chapter 12, starting in verse 12, correct? Yes, through 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it was written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Thank you. Lord, we pray now that you would take your word and minister to us, comfort us, Jesus, um, and give us your strength. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> to understand, like some of you may be like, maybe you've never heard this story before where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he's riding on a donkey and everybody's waving these palm branches and shouting, like, what is this all about? Um, well, for us to understand it, we actually have to go back to John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11 is uh, the story that maybe you've heard the story before. It's where Jesus raises a guy, Lazarus, from the tomb. And Jesus and his disciples were not in Bethany where uh, Lazarus was, but they had gotten word that Lazarus had died. And they're like, oh, you know, and all the disciples are like, that's a bummer, man. That's just, that's not good at all. We're friends with Lazarus and his two uh, sisters, Martha and Mary. And yet God, or Jesus said, we're going to go back. The disciples weren't confused about what that meant. Because see, Bethany was only about two miles from Jerusalem. And Jesus's ministry had started to stir all kinds of controversy. People were positioning themselves against him. As we read right here at the end of this, even the Pharisees were like, uh, look how the whole world has gone after him. They were being threatened by what this guy was doing. They knew there were plots to kill Jesus. So much so that even Thomas in verse 16 He says, well, are you sure? None of us want to go back with you. And he goes, we're going. And he goes, well, I guess let us also go that we may die with you. In other words, we're just going to be walking into the mouth of the lion. They knew what they were doing. And they got to uh, the tomb. And as you can imagine, there were tons of people now that were gathered around. um, And Jesus spoke and said, take, take away the stone. And I love Martha because she's so practical. She said, Lord, by this time there'll be a bad odor for we have, he's been in there for four days. Are you really sure you want to do this? And he said, do it. And then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. 
And the dead man came out, and his hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And then he said to this crowd that was all standing around, like people that were marveling now because they could smell death, and yet they're looking at life. They're like, this doesn't compute. We smell rot, but we see life. And then he said to the crowd, hey, get your hands involved. Jump in and start taking these linens off. And I told the guys in the first service, if, that, if I was there, I wanted to be the one to unwrap his face. Because I wanted to see, I wanted to be the first person to look at his eyes and go, dude, can you believe this? <laughs> see, you got to understand, this isn't a Bible story, which when we hear it in church, we kind of put it in that category of this happened. And the people that were there, this was happening to them. And you know what that means. There is nobody that has ever lived that has not died. Except for us. It's coming. Unless the, Lord's comes back, unless the Lord comes back. But up to this point in the history of humanity, there has been no stronger word than death. Because when death comes, nobody can undo it. It's the final word. And everybody knew that. We know that. We know that nobody comes up out of the grave. And yet Jesus spoke, and a dead man rose. You know what that means? One who is greater than death is here. Changes everything. Changes it all. Try to keep that a secret. Nobody could. In fact, the word started to spread, and the crowd started running into Jerusalem, because in Jerusalem at the time was the Passover festival. This is the largest pass, uh, festival for the Jewish community. People were coming from all over the country to be there. Some historians believe there may have been as many as 2 million people. And the buzz was buzzing that Jesus, the prophet, is the Messiah because he is greater than death. And he is coming to rescue us. That's what's happening. It's a coronation. The king is coming. He is coming into his coronation and he is going to take his throne for he is king of kings and lord of lords. So he's riding into the crowd and the crowd is hysterical. Like they're shouting Hosanna, which means save us, save us. You're the one, you can save us. He's on a donkey, which if you've been in church for a while, you've heard this before, but bear with me. This wasn't Jesus being like falsely humble. This wasn't Jesus going, you know, some guys have their stallion, I just happen to have my donkey. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 1, it's the coronation of Solomon. Someone tried to usurp the throne from him and to declare that he was the true king, his mother put him on a donkey and rode him through the city because everybody knew from the coronation of David, this was the coming of the king. And you know what that means? is that when Jesus is riding in Jerusalem on the same donkey in the same way that King Solomon did, they knew what he was saying. The king is here. And for the first time in Jesus' ministry, everybody was going, finally, finally, we've tried to make you king so many times and you've snuck away. We've tried to lift you up and get you to overthrow the Roman Empire so many times, and you disappear. Finally, you're coming into the biggest party that any of us are going to see all year long, and you're saying you're king of kings. 
it's, it's really kind of remarkable because in Mark 11, we get a little bit more of the story where they were throwing their cloaks down. Have you heard this before? Um, it was symbolism. And what they were doing is they were taking their cloaks off and throwing it down so he could ride across them. And they were saying, we are so devoted to your kingship. We're so devoted to you being the new ruler of Israel. We're so committed to you. This is symbolic of our bodies that you can ride on our backs to your throne and we will serve you that way. Man, these guys were devoted. He started writing Hillsong songs, you know, and <laughs> it was incredible. This crowd was unstoppable. <clears throat> These guys were so devoted. Jesus had them in the palm of his hand. And yet in John 19, listen, Jesus was arrested. And Pilate, he brought Jesus out and he set him down. And he sat on the judge's seat at a, a place known as Stone Pavement. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon, and Pilate said to this massive crowd, here is your king. Here is your king. They shouted back, take him away. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate looked at this crowd and said, you want me to crucify your king? These are the words out of their mouth. We have no king but Caesar. How, how's that possible? How's that possible for a crowd of people? Hosanna, our cloaks, everything is for you, totally devoted to you, to crucify him. How's that, how does that kind of duplicity exist in a crowd of people? These are horrible people. Like, they're horrible. But here's the sad thing, is that duplicity is through the whole Bible. I mean, it's all over the place. Pick any character from the Bible. I don't care. Maybe Goliath. He may get a pass. Like, he was probably true to himself, all right? I don't know if he was duplicitous. But Abraham, duplicitous. Come on. Go read the story. Moses, come on. He was at the burning bush hearing the voice of God and said, yeah, send somebody else. Think about it. the disciples. They were a cascading waterfall of duplicity through their entire life with Jesus. Do you know that even after the resurrection, when Jesus gathered the disciples together, it says they worshiped him, rightfully so. But the next line is, some doubted. What? Here... This is really critical for us to understand as we go into Passion Week. So critical. We're just like them. This is normal. This is so normal. It is so normal because I'm duplicitous. I, there are times where I love Jesus and I can sing songs of devotion. And then I leave church and I love more other things more. I can follow Jesus. Man, but man, me, love me some me. I can follow me. Forget about Jesus. I could be devoted to the Lord, but man, let me tell you, I got a long list of other things I'm completely devoted to. And sometimes there's no competition. That duplicity lives in me. And th this 
Midtown, we got to let this dirty little secret out. And here's the dirty little secret. You're a lot worse than you think you are. And let me make it worse. Hey, that person sitting next to you on your right, we'll just pick on them for a minute. They're a lot worse than you think they are. And let me tell you why. We are so committed to not being as worse as everybody thinks we are that we do a couple of things. The way, like, we live in a community that loves to hide our duplicity. I am so desperate for you to believe that the outside of me is perfectly consistent with the inside of me. I, you know, I don't ever show my dirty laundry. Come on. It's good. It's all good. Good, good. We love to hide. Why? Because it's so scary not to hide. And it, it ruins our community because... Because if you have some self-awareness, often we're comparing our inside with the person sitting next to us outside. And it creates so much shame. Like, you seem to have it all together. Your marriage seems to never have any kind of problems. Your work, you just always love your job. Like, this, this is amazing. You never struggle with depression. You never struggle with shame. You never struggle with the hatred for your neighbor. Wow, you got it all together. I'm a horrible person. I'm going to let you off the hook. That person you're comparing yourself to is as bad as you. It's true. When we're not hiding, we're justifying. We love to justify. I mean, I, I hear it all the time around Nashville. Oh, everybody's a mess. I'm just a mess like everybody else. It's okay not to be okay. If we're going to understand Passion Week, we have to know that we're a lot worse than we think we are. We have to face the brutal inventory of my own sin, the sin that I love. See, I don't run to sin I hate. You know what I hate? I hate black licorice. I am never tempted in my entire life to eat black licorice. I have never been, will never will be, unless Jesus comes and changes me. I will never be tempted to eat black licorice. Chocolate cake, whole different story. The sin that's in your life, do you know why it's in your life? Because you love it. You love it. And your sin isn't just what you do. Your sin is also what you love. And trust me, you go down to the root of that, it's uglier than just the things that you do. If you have enough courage, you'll see that. Ronald uh, Rolichet, he wrote the book, The Holy Longing. He said to be connected with the church is to be associated with scoundrels, warmongers, fakes, child molesters, murderers, adulterers, and hypocrites of every description. I also at the same time identify you as saints and the finest persons of heroical soul within every time, country, race, and gender. To be a member of the church is to carry the mantle of both the worst sin and the finest heroism because the church always looks exactly as it looked at the original crucifixion. God hung among thieves. Okay, hang on to that. Hang, hang on to that. Because let's get back to why. Why would God allow this to happen this week? I don't know. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't. But I know what the answer is not. The answer is not that God isn't good. The answer is not that God doesn't care. The answer is not that God isn't in control. That's not. 
the answer to the question. In fact, I'm going to break it to you because I'm older than a lot of you. If, if your hope is that as you get older, more and more mystery falls away to clarity, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm just sorry. This is a mystery that you're never going to have clarity on. And those mysteries are going to grow. They're going to grow. And here's the way we face mystery. Or here's where I have to face mystery. If I, if I unhinge myself from what I know and just run into mystery, it's going to unravel the things that I know. But if I hang on to the things that I know, it gives me courage now to go into mystery and find beauty there. And the things that we do know is that God is good. God loves us. God is in control. For some reason, in his infinite wisdom, he allowed what happened to happen this week. And how can we say that? Let's look at the story. Look, Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem to bring peace by a sword. He didn't ride into Jerusalem and ramp up the whole crowd to turn against the Roman Empire. No, he rode into Jerusalem to become evil. Wait, what? Jesus rode into Jerusalem to become the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God made him who had no sin, talking about Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear what happened? Jesus said, Randy can't handle his duplicity. It's going to destroy him. It's going to devour him. It's going to separate him from you, Father. There's no, he has no skills to deal with it. So I'm going to send my son, and my son will take on Randy's duplicity. He will become Randy's duplicity. He will become his sin and remove it from me so that he can give me what? His righteousness. The spotless lamb of God became tainted with my sin so that my duplicity wouldn't devour me but I've been brought from death to life now. And this, this isn't plan B. Jesus didn't come to try to fix everything and it didn't work out, so he went to the cross. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 54, you see this was the plan long before Jesus was even born. It says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We got, we got to pray. Let's stop. Jesus. Help us right now, because we're, we're going to wade into something that's too good to be true, and it's too good not to be true. I pray, Jesus, that you would transform this gathering from going to church to experiencing you now. We need you. Do you know in John 3.16, it says, for God so loved, and this is really important. I know what the answer is not, because he tells me that he is loved. And it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for you. 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In verse 17, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they've not believed in the name of God, one and only Son. What he's saying there is, Jesus removes my sin by his work on the cross and through my faith in him. If I've never put that faith in Jesus, I still remain covered in my duplicity. I stand condemned. It's Jesus that comes to rescue me from that. He laid down his life so that I could have life. He died so that we can live. So as we start this Passion Week, and we're about to come to this table, we have to realize that this is a table of repentance where we're coming and bringing our own sin, our own brokenness. And we have to talk about what is repentance because maybe you've heard that before. And repentance isn't this it's not this exchange that I have with God where I go, okay, God, I'm going to feel really sorry for my sins and in exchange for my sorrow, you're going to give me your forgiveness and grace. And the depth of my sorrow is going to equal the amount of your grace. That's not, that's not the economy of God. In fact, it's completely opposite of that. Repentance isn't giving me something I don't have. Repentance is reminding me of what is mine. In John chapter 21, there's this remarkable story about Peter. Peter was the friend of Jesus. Uh, he was the only man on the planet ever to walk on water besides Jesus. I mean, he only had a couple of steps, but that's more than you've had. Uh, <laughs> he's legit. And this guy, man, he was the man. In fact, in, I think, where was it? It was in Mark 8 that Jesus told Peter, I got to go to the cross and die. And Peter took him aside and rebuked him. And he said, hey, yeah, we're not going to do that plan. <laughs> That's Peter. Peter was the guy that told Jesus, I will kill for you and brought a sword to the garden. Peter was the guy that said, I will lay my life down for you. And yet when Jesus was arrested, it was Peter who denied him three times. Then Christ was crucified and Peter, in his shame and his duplicity, ran. And guess what happened? Jesus came running after him. Saw him, sat down, and cooked him some breakfast, which I love that about Jesus. And he looks at Peter and he goes, Hey, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? How deep is your devotion to me now, Peter? Are you the greatest lover of me that's ever walked the earth and on water? And Peter, you can just imagine, he's covered in his own shame and his own duplicity. He said, yes, master. You know I'm your friend. Well then, Jesus said, feed my sheep. They eat a little bit more breakfast. Hey, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter, yes, master, 
You know I'm your friend. Okay. Look after my sheep. Eat a little bit. Jesus looks up. Simon, son of John, are you my friend? Are you even my friend? Peter was upset. And if you've never known this feeling of being cornered by your own shame and truth, you're not going to understand what's going on in Peter right now. I've known that place where I've justified sin long enough and Jesus is pursuing me and I don't want him to pursue me because I don't want to pursue me. And I can't believe as much as I hate myself that Jesus would actually love me. That a part of me that can't stand to see the truth, I can't believe anybody else could stand to see the truth. And yet Jesus kept pressing in, and what does he say? Peter was upset on the third time, and Jesus asked, are you my friend? And he finally says, uh, you know everything. And look what he's saying. He's going, I don't know. Just a week ago, I was ready to lay my life down for you, and then I denied you three times. Like, who am I? Who am I that I have such gross duplicity within me? Who am I? I don't even know. Do I love anything? I don't know. Am I devoted to anything? I don't know. Am I committed to anything? I don't know. It seems so broken when we look in there. And what does Jesus do? Feed my sheep. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's going, finally, Peter. Finally, you're unhinging your death grip on your belief in you. Because look at me. Peter, I love you. That's where your hope belongs. Peter, I'm for you. That's where your strength is. Peter, I'll never leave you. That's where your courage is. Not in you, in me. See, we, we grieve this week. But we don't grieve as the world grieves. We grieve not without hope, but with hope. Because we are moving our confidence from us to him, and he is good. From us to him, and he is love. From us to him, because he's still on the throne. Do we understand? No. Does he understand? Yes. And I'm moving confidence from my understanding to his goodness over me. Because we are loved. Steve Brown, love this guy. If you've never read any of his stuff, you should read it. If you've never met him, you should go meet him. He wrote in his book, Three Free Sins. As Christians, we have not, we have not, we have not been called to tell the world how good we are and how God made us that way. We've been called to stand before God and even the world naked, completely exposed, and yet profoundly loved. In this state and in this state alone, we find power at its purest and its best. Midtown, I don't have the answers, but I'll tell you this, you're a lot worse than you think you are, but you are more loved than you could ever possibly imagine. And once we face our duplicity and we come to this table and lay it down, what we pick up is a love that God says, I dare you to grasp how wide, how deep, how long. I forgot one, but it's all there. <laughs> I dare you. And that's what we're about to do. We're about to come to this table.
Jesus has given us this gift that we can touch, that we can taste, that we're moving toward in our hearts with our bodies also. On the night he was betrayed, he said, I'm going to give you a sacrament. And a sacrament is not a religious ceremony. It's not Thanksgiving dinner that we just do it every year. A sacrament is a place of power. He promises to meet his people here so much so that he warns us. If you are not a Christian, if you don't know what I'm talking about today, come on, ask a lot of questions. Come on this journey, but not today. He also says, if you know me, then you know that when you come to this table, what you're saying to Jesus is deal with my duplicity. And if you're not willing to deal with your duplicity, but you're asking him to deal with your duplicity, Jesus says, I'm going to warn you, this is going to hurt. Right? We can say more about that. But if you're like, Lord, help me and help my unbelief, help my duplicity, run to this table. And he says there's power here. So the way we do it here at Midtown is is really kind of simple. Just whenever you're ready, come. We're not very organized here. Just just come on. It'll be messy, and you're going to have to get close. There's a lot of people here this morning. You can go out the hallway to make your way back. We have people that are going to be sitting out on the porch out here to pray for you if you would like to be prayed over this morning. If you need specific comfort of prayer, go out there and let them pray over you. If you don't want to go out there and that just seems too intimate, uh, if you're at the kneeler and if you cross your chest, the server will stop and pray for you. Just remind you that um, our wine is on the outer rings, it's grape juice on the inner rings. Um, You decide what it is that you need this morning and choose wisely. Let me pray for us, and when you're ready, come to the table. Father, how can it be? How can it be that we were enemies of yours? We have waged rebellion against your kingdom, and yet you came and found us. You were the offended, and yet you took care of the offense. And we pray, Father, that you would step into our duplicity this morning as we come and confess our sins to you and receive the assurance of our forgiveness through the elements of this table. Would you bless these elements, Father, that they would minister us deeply by the power of your Holy Spirit and heal our soul and give us comfort so that we may not hoard it, but we may give it to one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen.